Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Gabriella Hoffman back to the program. It's it's been a while. I understand you have uh, you've been quite the traveler and just uh, checked off your 41st state. Congratulations. Thank you, Brian. Yes, it's good to be back and I have been traveling. And travel doesn't stop here. I have two things next month. August, I'm going to Alaska for the first time, so state number 42. And this is what I get to do as a 1099 independent worker. So I'm very blessed to do this. And I know today's subject does relate to my lifestyle a little bit. And and the millions of people who partake in some semblance of 1099K work, especially 1099K work. So very excited to chat that subject with you and Break down what's going on, the latest. Okay, before before we dive in here, I know for, for some people you're going to be a familiar voice, but uh, take just a moment. Tell us just a little bit about uh, what you do uh, for Young Voices as well as otherwise, right. just so people know, know who they're hearing from. Right. So since the last time we spoke, I was promoted to regional leader of the Northeast in Young Voices. So they have deputized us, uh, the initial cohort, and I would say most of our staff is... Uh, remaining we had some people go into the roles recently but yes i assist with trying to recruit and seek out people to carry out young voices message in the northeast we've had pretty good success a lot of our contributors come from the region uh, but we try to also find others outside of washington dc i've been very keen on finding people from pennsylvania the north uh, new england area and West Virginia, other places. So it's been fun to be in that role. And I get to do a little bit of writing here and there and actually going to do more writing. So maybe I'll come back on the program in the future. But we've grown as an organization, as you've seen, and and our other contributors have alluded to. And it's it's fun. And outside of Young Voices, I work with Independent Women's Forum and their Center for Energy and Conservation. I work with another free market environmental organization where I produce a series called Conservation Nation. I run a podcast and too many things to list. Uh, but when I'm not talking about energy and conservation, I'm often talking about small business, independent contracting, labor issues with good folks like you on this type of platform. So I have many interests, but I would say my... my Several of the niches that really stick out to me are true conservation, small business, and defending the little guy, little gal from attacks from the federal government in such a manner. Let's talk about uh, the whole 1099 business. I, now, I'm an independent contractor, too, so the 1099 is a form that's near and dear to my heart. But um, for, for those who, who are not familiar with it, when we talk 1099K, what's the difference between that and a standard 1099? Right. So a 1099, I think most everyone, if you've engaged either in part-time work or occasional work and you've made over $600, you will be triggered, a, a, a form will be triggered for you to, let's say, d- uh, make note of your work um, if it exceeds that denomination dollars for 1099 regular. 1099K now, it used to be, I'm going to make the clear distinction, Um, This form used to only be triggered if you would have 200 transactions exceeding $20,000 annually. With this new provision in the American Rescue Plan, which is a very problematic provision now, people didn't realize this at the time, but they included it thinking that we have to extract more taxes from taxpayers, we're billions of dollars short. Why don't we find a way to do it this way? Uh, Thinking it doesn't hurt the smallest uh, money maker or revenue maker in the process. And so what this provision did with largely a Democrat uh, majority passage, no Republicans, to my knowledge, supported the American Rescue Plan. So it was passed on a bipartisan basis with this really problematic provision in place. 
And so what it did, it, it lowered that threshold to any transaction you make as a casual seller. Um, and typically casual sellers make no more than annually $5,000. So these are people who are not paying. I mean, it's not like they're skirting taxes. They are paying something. But these are people who are not making consequential amount of money to be having a 1099k form triggered according to old standards and wow. so anything exceeding 601 dollars now triggers uh once it goes into effect i believe late they put like a year pause on it so i think by the end of this year this will actually go into effect after the pause unless congress is somehow able to put a stop gap to this provision they use the congressional review act some maneuver like that and are able to stop that from being implemented but as it stands right now the irs is going to proceed with this even after a year pause as of our, our speaking today um, with this recording. And so a lot of people are very nervous that um, this is very invasive. And I mean, we all should be skeptical of the IRS. I do not like paying more money. And, and as I make more money and as any independent contractor makes more money, we're forking over more money to the federal government. This past tax season alone, I had to fork a bigger percentage than I normally did because I've been making more money. So they like to punish us for making more money. This is not a anarchist statement but i think the more you pay in taxes the more you see like where's your tax money going did the government have a hand in your business no it didn't um yep. but even though the denomination of money that people are making as 1099k filers potentially or, or surrendering is substantially lower than let's say someone like me who's making a lot more money as an independent contractor i feel for these people and i do not like the stipulations of the irs because the irs can exploit this provision and go after a casual seller um not only because the denomination is a lot lower like i said on average these casual sellers only make five thousand dollars annually that's almost infinitesimally small um, in the grand scheme of things of, of how money is taxed and whatnot but also a big concern is if the irs is doing this for such a smaller denomination what are they going to use their powers what are these eighty-seven thousand new agents across 10 years that they plan to hire what are they going to use with this new power through this new 1099K threshold, reporting threshold? They're going to go after people and say, why didn't you file this correctly if you're reselling used goods? As anyone knows, if you're reselling good use, used goods, excuse me, you're not the original owner. You don't know um, what the original price is, perhaps. You don't have the original receipts. And you're making a loss whenever you're selling that product for what it uh, originally was appraised for and what it originally cost. You're not having any capital gains with it. You're not making more money unless you're using some sort of formula to make more money off of used goods than the original price. Great. That's awesome. But I think most of these resellers, these casual resellers are taking a loss with these things that they resell on casual marketplaces. So this could invite potentially from the IRS. Many have noted this. Uh, the IRS could, this filing will make it so you have to put down your address, your social security number, other sensitive data they shouldn't be getting for such a small denomination of money. Then they're going to essentially bully these casual sellers and say like, okay, um, if we don't have any receipt of you, like being the original owner, we're going to hound you down and like hold you responsible for this. Like I said, um, for they didn't even have capital gains. They don't make much money from reselling these products. So it's going to be extremely hard to enforce this, especially as these people are secondhand or thirdhand owners of these goods they're selling. So we have wow. the IRS being more powerful for such a smaller denomination of money. Uh, we have this privacy component too, um, them having these powers and extracting so much sensitive information for, like I said, over $600, barely $600. Um, that That's bizarre any way you look at it 
and then also trying to have this enforcement mechanism where they're going to have to prove that they're not the original seller and and owner of these goods that they're secondhand, thirdhand sellers. Many problems instead in this. And I think with the IRS becoming more problematic, we aren't able to place trust in it as an agency because they have a history of fraud and abuse. This past uh, uh, year, the Government Accountability Office, as I noted in my article for Young Voices, it <laughs> said that there were trillions of dollars lost from the agency. And across a decade, um, they have lost, again, trillions of dollars. Uh, actually, um, this past year, they lost about several hundred million dollars or billion dollars that went unaccounted for. Not surprising that happens. And then in in the span of a decade, they have lost several trillion dollars of money and it goes unreported or uh, that money gets mismanaged rather. And so how can you trust an agency that doesn't know how to balance its own budget needs all these copious billions and trillions of dollars to sustain itself when in fact uh, they don't enforce things equally. Um, they're pretty aggressive in their enforcement mechanisms and they have a problem with stewarding money very well. So that that's something that your listeners have to take into account uh, with this 1099K threshold. Even if you're not affected, you should be concerned as a taxpayer um, because the agency can't be trusted with how they steward taxpayer dollars. They're seeing it. So people question, why am I paying this amount of money in income taxes, federal, state income taxes? We, as 1099K filers, pay self-employment tax. So we pay additional taxes than a conventional <laughs> employees. We're paying more. And then these poor people who are, this this is not their primary profession. They're going to be have they're going to have to be taxed further and more scrupulously because of this new threshold that's been downgraded. Very problematic all around. I'm going to be honest, Gabriella. You are dampening my enthusiasm for the IRS. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, this this I, I appreciate your your take on this, and that was such a great breakdown of it. Look, it sounds. I mean, a lot of people who will be affected by this aren't even necessarily you know 1099 independent contractors so much as maybe just somebody that has a side hustle, you know, to kind of help yes. make ends meet or have some fun money or travel money. And it sounds like uh, they're they're taking aim at them. Um, is there? We have about 30 seconds left. Is there any meaningful way to rein in the IRS or anybody talking like they might be interested in doing that? It depends who you talk to, because there are people who have said the IRS needs to be shrunken and needs to have its powers defanged. We see some presidential candidates talk about this. As it stands in Congress, it may be impossible to rein in the powers unless you get some moderate Democrats to do that. Um, we may see an appetite of moderate Democrats perhaps doing that very soon. Like I said, Congressional Review Act, that's the only way right now that you could repeal this. There are several bills to increase the threshold to the original amount, 20,000, 200 uh, transactions, and um, 10,000, 5,000. So it remains to be seen what we've done, but hopefully some reforms come soon. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome uh, Joshua Crawford back to the show. I'm going to call him Josh because that's what I call him. But uh, Josh, for people meeting you for the first time, we know you're a Young Voices contributor. Tell me about what else you do. Yeah, so I'm the director of criminal justice initiatives for the Georgia Center for Opportunity, which means most of my time is spent working with city and state government officials all over the country to try to reduce uh, urban violence, gang violence in particular. All right. And I'm, I'm looking at an article that uh, you uh, co-authored with Paul H. Robinson on Newsweek, Progressive Prosecutors and the Inconvenient Democratic Will. And uh, 
you know, I've heard rumblings of this. In fact, I guess as I watch the news and I see, you know, California basically saying, well, if it's less than $950, we won't even consider it, uh, you know, anything more than a misdemeanor. And now they're passing laws that would seem to, uh, in effect, legalize shoplifting and so forth. But I never really considered a punishment-free society uh, until I started seeing that kind of stuff. Has, has this move been around for a while? Yeah, really, the, the progressive prosecutor movement has gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of years because of the things that you're talking about. These no prosecution memos where they're saying for any theft under this offense or simple assaults or simple drug possessions, we won't prosecute. Right. And they sort of started with the low hanging fruit, the stuff that a lot of people are sort of like, oh, I don't necessarily think that that's all that bad. But in truth, this movement is just sort of the latest iteration of the anti-punishment movement, which is to say that <clears throat> punishment in and of itself is wrong. It's wrong across the board. It's wrong for those things that you may think are, are kind of piddly, but it's also wrong for the big stuff. Um, and this is what you're seeing with a lot of these prosecutors. that They start with the little stuff, but they're actually doing a lot more to to try to curb punishment uh, as it relates to some very serious offenses as well. Now, you point out in your article, and I, I would agree with this, I think most of us, even for, as, as kids, we instinctively understand that, uh, you know, when somebody does something seriously wrong, they need to answer for it, meaning uh, there there is a time and a place for punishment. Where does this, uh, this idea that, no, 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 punishment doesn't work and really should never be, uh, you know, be utilized, where does that come from? Who, who pushes it? Well, it's an idea so silly that only academics could really believe in it. And so uh, that is that is primarily where it's located uh, within some of the uh, elite universities and within the pages of certain peer reviewed journals. But it's made its way sort of into the activist class on the left as well. Some of the language Um, and and some of it is well-meaning. Right. Uh, A lot of us believe in rehabilitation, second chances, things like that, wanting to see people uh, rejoin civil society after they've done something wrong. But what it ignores is the the recognition that both across time and across cultures, uh, people believe that if you do something wrong, there are consequences for doing that wrong thing, regardless of what moving forward looks like. Right. Again, we all want people to criminally offend less moving forward. We we want people to become productive members of society after they've done something wrong. Uh, but again, across cultures and across time, there has always been a belief that if you do something wrong, there's consequences for that. So is I is it just semantics then when we talk about uh, punishment versus accountability? I mean, for instance, you know, maybe maybe there's something to be said for when someone has harmed another person or harmed their property. It's their duty as part of, of making that right to restore as best they can whatever wrong they've done. Uh, is that the same? Th- that, that seems to me like accountability. Is, is that synonymous with punishment or does punishment take it further than that? Yeah, punishment necessarily needs to be uncomfortable and undesirable, right? And so that can take a wide variety of different forms. We typically think about it in the, in the context of incarceration or, or formal things like that. Um, but it could be compelling someone to do something, to give up something in favor of the the benefit of someone else because they've done them wrong. It can take a wide variety of forms. Uh, but the key there is that it's it's uncomfortable and it's undesirable, right? And, and again, across time, it's taken many different forms. I mean, corporal punishment for a long time in human history was the 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 preferred and typical form of punishment. We don't use corporal punishment anymore. We don't use whippings or lashings or anything like that. The primary form of punishment today is is imprisonment. And there are other benefits to that type of incapacitation. Um, but punishment itself can take a wide variety of forms. 
Okay. Now, um, what's the danger when, when um, a society starts moving away from holding people accountable, from punishing serious wrongdoing? What kind of message does that send to, to those who may be uh, inclined to engage in that kind of behavior? Yeah, so there's there's really two consequences. The the first and most obvious consequence is if you remove punishment from something that used to have punishment, you're probably going to get more of whatever that thing is, right? It's the sort of inverse of the taxation question. If you want something less, tax it, right? If you want more of something, punish it less uh, as it relates to, to criminal behavior. Um, the bigger and I think longer term consequence, though, is that you no longer have sort of a North Star for the criminal justice system, right? If all that matters is, uh, be it some sort of rehabilitation or some sort of non-offending, then uh, the state can, with whatever means it feels necessary, force a person to do things to get to that point. And so you may have someone who's done something very serious. The, the sort of running uh, joke, if you will, is that uh, most domestic homicides are actually self-rehabilitative, that the person that is being killed in that instance is the only person that that person has any desire to kill. And therefore, they're probably not going to kill again by virtue of, of having killed that person. Well, if all that matters is that the person doesn't offend anymore, then you can theoretically not punish that person at all. By contrast, take somebody who is struggling with very severe addiction, and the goal is to try to get them to stop not only using drugs, but to stop petty theft and things like that. Well, you could force that person into years and years and years of treatment and, and different kinds of things that amounts to far greater punishment than uh, you have for the very serious offense. And so all of a sudden, the criminal justice system look, starts to look very contrary to what the average person thinks is, is right and wrong, right? The I would be willing to bet if you sort of family feud style polled 100 Americans uh, and asked them if murder was more severe than drug use, I think 100 Americans would tell you that murder is more severe than drug use. But without the sort of punishment principle as your guiding light, then all of a sudden the, the system doesn't necessarily have to treat those things that way. Talk to me about the danger, too, of uh, leaving leaving crimes unpunished or at least the perception that justice is not going to, to take any kind of a priority. Uh, I'll give you an example here in, in my home state of Idaho. Over the weekend, uh, apparently uh, a father was fed up with a next door neighbor who apparently was um, doing lewd acts in front of his, his underage, his, this is a neighbor's underage daughters. And uh, he, he went over and killed the guy. Now, he also mm-hmm. killed three other family members. And, you know, I'm not trying to make out that that was that was a good and righteous thing to do. But it seems like this would open the door to more vigilante type activities if the perceptions yeah. there that we can't get justice any other way. So if, if somebody's not going to make a stand, then I guess we'll take matters into our own hands. Yeah, it's already a huge problem among gangs and cities, right? Retribution is a major driver of violence among gang affiliated individuals and cities, in part because of this belief that the the system won't actually solve the problems. I'll take it into my own hands. I'll handle it. And so that's one of your major problems is that I, I tell people all the time that the the opposite of retribution is not rehabilitation. The opposite of retribution is revenge. Because in the absence of retribution, which is controlled, is proportional, has all of these limiting factors associated with it, you have revenge, which has no limiting factors, which uh, that individual uh, who was was shot and killed may very well have deserved some sort of punishment. uh, But instead, an entire family ends up dead because revenge is uncontrolled. So we've got about one minute left. Let's talk solutions. What are some of the things that are on the table to address this trend? 
Yeah. So what you're seeing a lot of state legislatures do is sort of reevaluate their criminal codes uh, to make sure, again, that those who need to be punished more severely are. Um, but we're doing this in a more intelligent way than perhaps we ever have before, which is to try to not cast so wide a net that we end up capturing a bunch of people who we end up punishing too severely. And so the real solution is to take a scalpel to the problem of, of state criminal codes, uh, punish people appropriately, make sure that folks are held accountable when they need to be, but that we don't punish the wrong people too much. Again, we are talking with Josh Crawford. He's the director of criminal justice initiatives at the Georgia Center for Opportunity, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Josh, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your work? Yeah, so uh, foropportunity.org uh, is the is the Georgia Center for Opportunity's website. And then uh, you can follow me on Instagram. It's jcrawford502. Very good. Thank you so much. I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Mackenzie Richards, who is a Young Voices contributor to the program. Mackenzie, for those meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks, Brian, for having me on today. Uh, my name is Mackenzie Richards. I'm a policy associate at the Pacific Research Institute, I'm located in California, and I do primarily healthcare policy, a little bit of education policy, and I'm a Young Voices uh, contributor. Well, I, you know, it's interesting that you and I are going to be talking today about uh, the uh, pharmacy shortages and pharmacist shortages uh, in relation to, you know, stores closing. I was just talking about this actually just this morning. My wife and I were talking about how hard it must be, particularly in California, to, to keep a, a department store or anything like that open just because, uh, you know, of shoplifting and, and uh, other you know, other criminal acts that seem to be minimized. Talk to me a little bit about uh, why pharmacies keep closing and uh, to what extent does does that lax approach on crime play into that? For sure. So, I mean, we hear a lot about California crime or crime in, you know, inner cities, especially exacerbated after after COVID. And you've hear, heard a lot about, you know, different grocery stores closing and other necessary, you know, locations closing as a result of this, you know, organized crime. Um, also pharmacies are closing and that's causing, um, pharmacy deserts, uh, which affects the most vulnerable among us. Wow. So, um, Let's talk about specifically drug stores, because I, you know, I hear talk oh, Target's closing, and you know some of these stores that uh, that are shutting down because they're they're being looted on a regular basis. But I have not heard as much emphasis on pharmacies. But I could see that being a much bigger problem, just given the sheer number of people who, you know, they have monthly medications that that they depend on. Um, what do, what does the trend look like in terms of of drug stores closing? Yes. So, you know, pharmacies, one thing to keep in mind with pharmacies, a lot of the items that they sell are small in size, but high in value and are easily resold online. And so what you see a lot of the time is that the items that are stolen, you know, pharmacies are are targeted because of this. You know, it makes it easier for organized crime uh, rings to to go into pharmacies and, you know, steal these items. And we're seeing, you know, there's closures across the board. Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS have all announced large closures. CVS has announced 300 stores are going to be closing nationwide each year for the next three years. Wow. That largely impacts inner cities 
and rural communities who need access to to medications. You know, this is a very serious problem. And, you know, for some people, you know, perhaps they can get mail-in prescriptions, but for a lot of people, you know, that might not work. So what is that, what options does that leave, for instance, for people in these areas where their drug stores are shutting down? I know the obvious answer is, well, just drive a little further and go, go get your, your medications. Why is that a problem, though, for some people? Yeah, so, you know, for me, I had a Rite Aid close in my neighborhood. Um, I lived in Riverside. It was boarded up. It kept getting robbed. For me, I could drive an extra five, ten minutes to the, the Rite Aid, you know, and it, which was in a safer neighborhood anyway. But I am friends with this woman, and she was formerly homeless. I would drive her to church on Sundays. And one day we were driving past this Rite Aid that closed in her neighborhood, and she bitterly commented and said, you know, I can't get my medication anymore. And she she has like a plethora of health problems. Um, she had a broken leg, broken hips, um, you know, from when she was home when she got hit by a car. And so for her, she really relies on Ubers, friends helping her get to these locations for, um, you know, to get medications. But for a lot of people, they just simply go without, you know, this really impacts vulnerable populations um, in inner city areas. So I can see why <clears throat> particularly organized theft and, and shoplifting would be a huge disincentive to keeping a store open. I mean, look, these are businesses. They're, they're not in business to give everything away to, you know, the first person to come in and take it out the door. But what about pharmacists themselves? You mentioned in your article, there's quite a shortage of pharmacists. Why is that? Sure, of course. So, you know, the issue of pharmacy closures is multifaceted. It's not just crime. And of course, some states have better crime laws. Um, another issue has to do with what you, you, know, you mentioned is um, pharmacist accreditations. So about four years ago, pharmacy groups lobbied to, you know, close down accreditation for new pharmacy schools. And so what we're seeing is a shortage of pharmacy pharmacists just to, um, you know, man these pharmacies. And so a lot of these, you know, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, they can't keep their stores open long enough, you know, they're shortening hours or they're not able to keep their pharmacies open at all. Um, and so that amounts to, you know, pharmacy deserts as well Is even if a, a, a pharmacy doesn't close necessarily, um, shortening hours can effectively, you know, cut off supply for, for those who, who need who need access to, to get their medication. This is kind of near and dear to me because uh, when was it? About four years ago, my son uh, went to school to uh, he, he wanted to start pre-pharmacy. He had his sights set on I'm going to be a pharmacist. And about uh, his first semester in, he changed his major because he said, I don't know what I don't know what trends he was looking at. He was reading the tea leaves correctly, though, and said, yeah, I, it just doesn't it doesn't look like it's going to pay to be a pharmacist, you know, in the years ahead. So he went ahead and got a degree in biochemistry, which is, is actually going to serve him well. But um, I, I was surprised. I always thought that would be like that would be one of the more secure, always needed kind of professions. I didn't realize there could be an ebb and flow in, in pharmacists. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We had a pharmacy pharmacist shortage back in 2000. And to meet that demand, oh, many new pharmacy schools opened, um, you know, just supply and demand, you know, letting the market behave as it naturally would. But when pharmacy groups lobby to close down schools or limit that accreditation, you know, for fear that maybe there's too many pharmacists, what, what that has led to as a result is now people aren't able to get their medication, you know, and so in a timely fashion or maybe not at all. And so, you know, I think that pharmacy groups and, and pharmacy schools really need to look at, 
you know, increasing opportunities for people like, you know, your son who, who want to get out there and get those degrees so that they can, they can help people. Yeah, well, and, you know, my dad was a pharmacist, so it was kind of like, oh, cool, we're keeping the tradition going. But uh, but it, it sounds like, you know, for, for multiple reasons, um, that's not an easy industry uh, to be in at this moment. So let's talk solutions, Mackenzie. What is being done to, to help... Uh, to help protect the interests of, of drugstores so that we don't see these continued uh, closings? is what I guess, first of all, what can be done? Sure. So in terms of policy um, for crime, one bill that we're looking at right now is AB 1708. It's still in committee. It's in California. And basically, this would help crack down on repeat offenders. Um, in California, they have pretty lax policies uh, when it comes to you know the limit of what people are allowed um, to steal in terms of what's defined as petty theft, and they have pretty lax policies and repeat offenders. This would help reverse that. Um, another bill that's actually what came through for, from Congress is the Inform um, Act, and the Inform Act helps crack down on reselling goods online, and that came into effect this month. Okay, and I have to ask this just from the standpoint of. Um, you can sometimes tell a lot uh, by who's pushing back against uh, these kinds of reforms. Who would stand in the way of, of these kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, to organized crime, there's, you know, or crime issues just in general. I mean, there's a lot of different interest groups. People worry that, you know, having, you know, strong policies on crime can, you know, harm harm people that you know vulnerable populations but i think what we're seeing here is that having lax policies is actually is what is 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 uh in that way and then in terms of you know the pharmacy accreditations and and all of that um what we're seeing is like the pharmacist groups and um you know pushing back against that and so those are the groups that tend to to stand up against these issues well, uh, do you feel more or less optimistic looking ahead? I mean, the, the trend right now is, I mean, as you mentioned in your article, uh, CVS is, is uh, was it CVS shutting down 300 stores or was that uh, Walgreens? I can't remember, but that's a lot of stores. I mean, we're talking hundreds of stores being shut down. What would it take to reverse that trend? You know, I am optimistic. You know, this is an issue that more people are becoming aware of. Uh, there's the USC Schaefer Center in you know Southern California, and they're working on armed pharmacy deserts and kind of understanding where they're located, creating the data for that, and that'll help us know where where we can work to get these pharmacies reopened, and um, you know getting the information out there for the public so more people can uh, pressure pressure these groups to to reverse these trends. Is there any hope for uh... I'm going to call it the mom and pop kind of drugstore, or has has that uh, has that ship sailed? It seems like during the lockdowns, especially, um, most of the mom and pop type businesses tended to fold. You know, is 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 this the era of the bigger corporate stores, and is it going to stay that way for the foreseeable future? You know, a lot of the bigger corporate stores are closing, and they're kind of turning to more innovative business models, you know, online based. And so I think that in terms of brick and mortar, we will see more mom and pop stores, especially in states where they're more amenable to small businesses. And so I wouldn't, uh, I'm a little bit more optimistic on that front, okay. uh, which is nice to say. I appreciate your optimism. We're talking with Mackenzie Richards. She is a Young Voices contributor. Mackenzie, where can people follow you on social media? 
or you can follow me on Twitter um, at Mick underscore Richards. And uh, that's where you can find my stuff. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome uh, Kenneth Shrupp back to the program. Kenneth, you're a familiar voice to a lot of our listeners, but uh, for those meeting you for the first time, take a moment here. Tell them about who you are and what you do. Hi, nice to see you again. My name is Kenneth Shrupp. I'm a Young Voices contributor and editor at the California Review, which is an independent journal in California. Um, in addition to my time at Young Voices, I'm a public affairs consultant, and I tend to focus my works on the intersection of politics, business, and media. Okay, you and I seem to spend a lot of time talking about some of the unique issues that, that are being faced in Los Angeles, housing being one of the big ones, and uh, and I got to admit, your optimism, I think, is is very refreshing and, and probably something that more communities need, because uh, I'm I'm... I would have probably written off L.A. a long time ago, but you're in there, you know, fighting to help make things happen. Looking at a recent article that you wrote for PacificResearch.org about uh, homeless, the 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 homeless uh, assistance projects, and you make the case here that uh, it's better to focus first on transformation than affordability. Talk to me about some of the things that are being done to help the homeless, and then help me understand why why this clarification and, and where the those efforts are best spent. Of course. So in my latest piece at the Pacific Research Institute, I really explained uh, our current system of homelessness funding and aid and what has to be done to get to a place where uh, we have a system that's best for all and doesn't just move around homeless populations like a hot potato. Currently, uh, homeless population uh, treatment and funding is treated like a business. You get grants for the number of people that you serve, but not necessarily the amount of lives that you save and transform. So this really incentivizes people to create these massive programs that don't get people out of homelessness, that keep people cycling through these nonprofits without any real change in their life. Um, we have a system where we we have a very lucky few people who get the $700,000 single-person apartments being built for them with full wraparound services while you have people lining up on the streets in the thousands waiting to get a free apartment because they don't want to take any of these conditional these uh, other units that we're offering in motels. Uh, there's something called uh, Operation Inside Safe that our mayor has decided to put significant revenue towards where these homeless individuals are offered free housing today but many reject it because it comes with rules and stipulations. If you want to come in, they have to check and make sure you don't have weapons so you're not going to hurt someone. They don't want to have any of these rules. So they stay on the streets and they often commit many crimes that go unaddressed um, and they escalate. They get to a point where in Los Angeles in 2022, there is one individual who spent maybe a decade committing smaller crimes, but working their way up to violence, to throw, to shooting a flare gun into a car, moving car that had children in it, and then mm. eventually walking into a store, an architecture, um, a, a fine architecture store, and killing the person in this who is manning the store, who is a 24-year-old lady who is an architecture student at UCLA. 
it's not fair to let these people just sit out on the streets and, and wait until they die of an overdose, which many do. When pe- There was one trick in Los Angeles uh, when one aid worker was trying to offer people housing, but she saw overdose after overdose happening. And these people only didn't die because there was a medical team attached to the uh, social workers. These people would have all been dead. Is it really fair to let them stay out on the streets? So the solution we offer is, um, I think both humane and uh, rather simple. Um, I think we need to expand mental health care courts to determine that people who commit crimes who are mentally ill and drug ad- and or drug addicted, which is a very, very high number of individuals, um, that instead of sending them to jail, where they're not going to get better, it's, it's, they don't need to be locked up with hardened criminals, um, to put them into residential treatment programs. That are very that have very strict release terms, so that only when they're really ready for independence, when they're not going to cause damage to the communities that they're allowed out into, that we can put them into transitional housing. But the transitional housing now is mostly built in very high-income areas, um, which is a waste of money. And also, these people are never going to be independent. Do you expect them on you know low low-skill wages to be able to afford an apartment in, say, Santa Monica on their own? No, they're going to be in um, transitional housing for their entire lives. They're never going to be on their own. And it creates uh, hostility within the local population. Is this really the best way to spend our resources? But at the same time, you can't just throw these people where it's more affordable to live without significant safeguards. You're just going to be putting a hostile population there. Um, But by having strict graduation standards and building these transitional units where it can be affordable for them to live as contributing members of society, uh, we can significantly cut down on the number of homeless waiting on our streets. You know, the the thing that just jumped out at me from your article was uh, I, I really have tended to view homelessness as just, well, it's a matter of they just need some place to live. They need a roof over their heads. But you've just outlined there's a lot of other factors that play into it as to why people become homeless, as well as why they choose to stay homeless in some cases. Um, talk to me for a minute about, you know, you mentioned these $700,000 apartments, you know, that people were lining up to get. I'm curious, when, when someone is awarded one of those apartments, do they tend to take care of them, or is is it kind of treated like basically is it subject to the tragedy of the commons, where you know if it's if they don't really feel responsibility for it, that they they don't feel the incentive to to care for it and to to be good stewards. Uh, unfortunately, I can't really speak to that. Um, there are very very few of these units that have been completed since funding was awarded. I think it was in 2012. We 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 decided to spend. Um, $10 billion building 10,000 units, but only a few thousand of them have been built and ever will be built due to the insanely high cost of construction. Uh, I mean, for, for reference, these apartments cost about as much as the median house in California that could, ho- that could house five, six people. Or I, I don't know how many bedrooms, four, four bedrooms, four people. I mean, this is, these are insane costs that we're paying to put people in extremely expensive neighborhoods. Yeah, and and I imagine there's probably some pushback from from the the residents of those neighborhoods in some cases. I'm, I'm sure not in my backyard is not something that's uh, unique to one particular area of the country. Um, talk to me about the programs and the the different organizations that administer these programs. Do they have the right incentives to make sure that they're actually helping people as opposed to simply? keeping the money flowing so that they have work to do? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? In other words, do they find job security? I mean, as long as there's homeless, they've got job security. If they get too good at solving the problem, they may just find themselves out of work. 
let me give you a really great example of the kinds of organizations that are trying to run these projects. Um, just earlier this year, a measure came to effect called Measure ULA, which is a transfer tax on all properties worth over $5 million. They sold it as a mansion tax, but this really affects multifamily housing development the most. We have seen funding go to zero for multifamily housing that people will be able to afford to live in and rent. You know, Los Angeles has the largest housing shortage of any city in the country. We have more people per room than San Francisco or New York, which shows wow. how severe our housing shortage is. There's a group of nonprofit developers that wrote this measure ULA to put in this transfer tax um, into place on all properties to make sure that all that money would go to them. They could wipe out their competitors who are for-profit or even mom-and-pop developers just building small projects to house normal families who want to pay rent um, just so that they can get more money for their pie, more money for their programs, and have less competition. And meanwhile, they're cratering housing affordability for everyone else. Job security in exchange for housing affordability um, is a terrible, terrible combination. Well, I applaud those people who are, are rolling up their sleeves and getting in there and trying to get it done. And I think the, the crux of what you're saying in your article is um, y- you have to be wise and, and be thinking ahead of what are the unintended consequences, what what will this accomplish, as, as well as what are some of the things we don't want to see incentivized. Um, anybody in particular you want to give a shout out to as far as uh, if people want to help out, say they have money they want to donate or resources, you know, what are the organizations that you would steer them toward to help make that difference? There are a few organizations that have seen really high success rates, well over 50%. Uh, one of them is is very is local in Los Angeles called Chrysalis. Um, they, they help people get into very strict, like work live programs where they, they have a set routine for graduation. Um, and once they get through the program, they're living, they're living on their own, they're working great jobs and they're contributing members of society, but it's very hard to scale these programs, uh, to a certain extent, if you don't have the support, the legal support from the city to continue managing them. Okay. Well, listen, I applaud the the work that you're doing, and I I especially appreciate you shining some light on this issue. Um, I know that uh, a lot of us tend to get selective blindness, you know, when it comes to the homeless. If we're walking down the street, well, I don't see them, you know, and and we don't it's a problem we don't want to acknowledge. But, um, you know, Los Angeles, as you mentioned, has a massive you know, problem they're contending with. And it sounds like uh, there are some people taking some very serious steps to help. And I appreciate what you're doing to help bring that to light. Where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your work? You can find my work easily on, on social media, on Twitter at Kenneth Shrupp, K-E-N-N-E-T-H-S-C-H-R-U-P-P. And at the California Review, uh, whose website is calrev.org. All right, Kenneth, great to catch up with you again. I look forward to our, our next update. Thank you very much, Brian. You have a great day.